0: and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the
1: reading of God's word. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're visiting and don't have a Bible, please feel free to use the pew Bible. You'll want it in front of you. And if you'll turn to page 1017, you'll be with us. And uh, great, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible. Our congregation would like to make that a gift, and I, Cindy and I at the back also have a, not only a gift for you, but there's a little beginning, beginner's Bible study that we would be more than happy to grant to you as well. That would be a privilege. So I uh, look forward to being with you tonight, children, that you can make your way to Children's Church to my left. There'll be those there to greet you. There's a note sheet that's provision, provided. Well, this is an interesting Sunday for me. My last sermon in 1 Peter and my last sermon tonight in Ecclesiastes. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is God's word that is now read in your hearing. By Sylvanus, that's verse 12, 1 Peter 5, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand. Firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. So I had planned twenty-eight. We've arrived at number forty-nine sermon, and at the conclusion of our study of First Peter in this series, that's devoted to under embracing what the theme of First Peter is, which is very simply: I want you to always be ready to give an account of the hope that's always be ready. That's why we're doing that this year in our. Theme of lifestyle of evangelism and discipleship. Always be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you. And then we're also told who we are in Christ so that we're ready because of Christ gospel blessings, 15 of them of who you are in Christ. And Peter's also given you, as of the end of today, 15 gospel commands. I've included most of them for you on the back sheet. I'm going to give you a final distillation of all of them in a couple of weeks. But um, so here is this lifestyle, always being ready to give an account, to defend the faith and propagate the faith. And then also, not only to do that, but to understand who you are as the elect in Christ because of Christ, what you do for Christ, and understanding that, those gospel commands, and that lifestyle for Christ will lead to suffering for Christ, and to spiritual warfare as you are faithful to Christ. And he's done that through these five chapters, and then we get to the end when you normally would think maybe the end has already come. Peter, why did you do this? Now, Harry, what are you talking about? Two questions. I've got two questions for you that at least came to me as I came to this last section. Why did you write this? Peter, here's my first question. Peter, why would you write this postscript, particularly in light of where we just ended? Do you remember the last week? Here's what he told us. The one who has called you after you have suffered a little while, he himself will establish you, strengthen you, confirm you. He himself will bring you to glory. Then this rousing doxology to him be the dominion and the glory forever and ever. Amen. OK, let's go home. Then comes a postscript. By the way, I'm going to send this letter with Sylvanus, and church at Babylon. That means Rome is saying hello and John Mark and and then a couple other thoughts I've got for you. Why did not we end with that rousing doxology? Why does he do this? Here's the second question. And by the way, of course, obviously, when I'm asking the question, why did the Apostle Paul not end with that rousing doxology? Why does he do this postscript? What I'm really asking, since he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, why does the Holy Spirit not end with the doxology? Why did the Holy Spirit lead us into this postscript? Well, since it is from the Holy Spirit, and since Peter was a functioning uh, person who is actually writing this, what would the Holy Spirit through Peter be saying to us in this? Postscript. So let me answer the first question. Let me go ahead and give it to you. Why would he do this? It's very simple. That's the way you wrote a letter in the first century. And folks, it's this simple. It's this simple. Christians live in the world. And any of the conventions of the world that are amoral, we can use them. In fact, we ought to use them. We should use them. That's, that's, that's like asking, why did he use papyrus? Why did he use a quilt? Those are our moral instruments. And so we ought to use them. We ought to use them. Because that's the human convention. Listen, you've got your Bible was put together over 1600 years with 40 plus human authors. And every one of those human authors in the providence of God were the kind of men that God called them to be when he had called them and designed them and their education, their experiences, their parenting, uh, who parented them, their relationships. All of those things had been sovereignly appointed of God to fashion them for this purpose that he used uses them. And the same God who uses human authors the way he has developed them tells us in this world as believers and as preachers and as Christians, he tells us to do what the prophets and the apostles do, use any and all our moral human conventions and culture. And, in fact, if you don't, you're going to be dismissed. If Peter had finished this letter any other way, in fact, what's a letter in the first? If you'll go read the other epistles, guess what they start off with? A salutation. Guess what they do? They write the stuff. Guess what they do? They end with a postscript. Every one of them. Why? Because that's the way you did a letter in the first century. So you here's a letter. What do you do? You write it like you would in the first century. In fact, if Peter had not used these amoral uh, or these moral neutral conventions, if he had not used them, the simple fact is people would have probably dismissed him. It would have been a distraction. They would have been saying, "Oh, I don't need to listen to this. He doesn't even know how to write a letter. And so that's what is happening here. Now, I want you to tuck that away in your mind. Now, now we know why he's using it, because you use these human conventions. Now, the question is what is it that he says in this postscript and folks this thing is rich so I need you to hold on with me let's do it I gotta do it fast so here we are I'm gonna give you three ways to look at this postscript that I think will be helpful the first thing he does with this postscript is he gives you the apostolic identification and commendation of the one who has been appointed to carry the letter the letter carrier look at it by Sylvanus. by Sylvanus, I have appointed him by Silvanus, here's what he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. This is the guy that's going to carry the letter to you. Now, who is he? He has been, he has been affirmed by Paul. Now y'all do realize you don't have, you don't have the uh, post office in the Roman empire. When you write a letter, you got to find a way to get it there. And uh, and so he said, here's how it's coming. This would be a normal convention. You write the letter, you write the letter conventionally, and then you send the letter and you can send it by someone. And you always have a way to affirm the credentials of the one who's bringing the letter. So, you know, who actually wrote the letter and that this is authentic. And so he identifies him. He says, Silas. Sylvanus—I've already given it away. Who is Sylvanus? He's Silas. In the epistles, you'll hear his formal name because he's usually given in the context of credentialing. Is Sylvanus? So in the epistles, you'll hear him called Sylvanus, but in the book of Acts, you'll hear him called Silas by Luke, and that's his nickname. Y'all do know that you get names and you get nicknames, and um, so um, when you um, uh, when you hear the names of of those who are uh, uh, who you know you've got special like Robert Bob, we always shorten them. I mean I went through this in my uh, I went through this in my you know Margaret Meg or Peg or something like that, and uh, that's what it's, Sylvanus Silas. And so Luke, who's just getting the history to us, he, he just goes to the nickname everybody knows about him in the churches, Silas. Now, But when, when they're giving him to carry the letters and identify the one in the letters, they're going to use his formal name. And that's what Paul and Peter do. They call him Silvanus. And, um, but you've, I, my own family, do you know how long Cindy and I prayed and thought about what we were going to name our children, our girls? And we named the first one Jennifer. We named the second one Abigail. There was reasons we did that. Now today, I am the only living human, along with my son, who calls them by their names. I'll never forget going to watch them play sports. And Jennifer had become Jen. And um, Abigail had become Abby. And then I'll never forget the time I went Ab, what in the world have you done to that name for crying out loud? Ab, Abby, Jen. I mean, so those are names. I mean, my wife, Cynthia, you know, everybody calls her Sin. Uh, oh wait, no, no, that's not quite accurate. That, that's not accurate. That, so, but people have a way of shortening. That's what he's done. Sylvanus Silas. And so that's how Luke refers to him in Acts, and the epistles refer to him with his formal name. But there's something more. When Luke gives us an insight on him, you find him first appearing in Acts 15. He was chosen when after they had the general assembly of the Presbyterian church in Jerusalem. That's certainly what it was. And after they had the general assembly there in Jerusalem, they sent out these recommendations, and they chose two men to carry them out, a guy named Judas and a guy named Silas, And then we're told two things by Luke concerning Silas. One, he is a leader who is, who is effective and he is a preacher who is an effective preacher. We're told by Luke that he is an effective leader and he is an effective preacher. And that's why he had been chosen for this sacred and important task of carrying the recommendations to all the churches. Now, you'll find him again showing up a little bit later when uh, when Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on the second missionary journey. And they have this discussion of who's going to go with them. And and and, um, Barnabas says, let me go get my cousin, John Mark and put. Paul said, no, we're not taking him on the first missionary journey before we even got to the field. He washed out, and went back home. So we're not taking him. Barnabas said, yes, we are. Paul said, no, we're not. So you ended up with the first and second missionary team as uh, Barnabas takes off John Mark. And then Paul goes and takes with him Silas because of this reputation that he has. And so now now you um, and so so now this Silas. Now shows up not only with Paul, but he also shows up with Peter, who is writing this letter from the church at Rome. He is there with him doing ministry. And now he has said to him, I want you to take this letter to all of these churches that I'm writing up in Galatia, which today, as you know, is Turkey. I want you to take it with them and I want you to carry it with you. Why? Well, then Peter says two more things about Silas. He's my brother. You know, isn't that interesting? you got a whole segment of the church that says that Peter is this exalted um, kind of first people position. and um, But yet, when he's talking about people, he sure doesn't occupy that position. What does he say to, uh, he doesn't say, well, Silas is my whatever. He says, he's my brother. So I regard him. So I regard him. You see the faithfulness of, of Silas because he then says he's faithful. He's my faithful brother. And then you see the humility of Peter. He's my brother. He, he doesn't see him as his servant. He sees him as his brother. And so that's how what we find out about Silas. And we, that's how the apostle identifies the one that's taking it out. And then what is the commendation he makes about him? He's faithful. I want to ask you a question. If on your tombstone... They are only allowed to write one word. What would be the word you would want written? I am pressed hard to think of one more important or more profound or more desired. Faithful. Faithful is a man. Faithful is a woman of God. Faithful is a husband. For God. Faithful is a. As a wife. Faithful as a dad. Faithful as a mom. Perfect. Just faithful. Next year. Our, we're going to move to. From our ministry theme. Next year is going to be. Lifestyle stewardship. What is the one word. That's desired for a steward. According to Jesus. What's the one word. A steward is to be found what. Faithful. So here's what he says. He's Faithful. So he gives not only an identification, he gives a commendation. Here is a man who's coming to you. Uh, Luke tells us some things about him, but Peter says, I want you to know he's a brother. That means he's forgiven. I want you to know he is a brother who is uh, Luke. wants you to know he's fruitful. And what do you also want to know? That he is faithful. So let's go to the second thing that the Postscript tells us. And the second thing the Postscript tells us is the having moved from the apostolic identification and commendation of the letter carrier, we now move to the summation and distillation of the letter contents. So go with me to the next sentence that you find in the next verse. I have written... All right, here's the first thing. Let's stop here. I have written briefly. Now, you read that, you look at these five chapters and you say, what? Briefly? I mean, of course, we have a. Even if back in my day, <laughs> that I would have looked at that. I wrote letters, um, and uh, when you write letters, this wouldn't wouldn't be seen as a brief letter. And uh, now today, in the day of Instagram and Snapchat and tweet and email and text, um, brief. Good gracious. I mean, I only got 140 characters to work with. What in the world are you talking about brief? Well, he is not saying it's brief because of the number of words that he used. He is saying it's brief in light of the subject he was addressing. Do you know how much here's what he's telling you? Do you know when I wrote this letter about who God is, who you are? Who you are is the elect in Christ because of Christ. And I got you those gospel blessings. I landed up with 15. Would you like to know how many I could have put? When I give you 15 gospel commands, do you know how many there actually are? I've had to leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. I've written briefly in light of the magnitude. When I talk about what it means for you uh, that Jesus told you you're going to suffer for Christ. And you're suffering for Christ and I'm trying you to, I don't, it's going to be grievous, but I don't want you to be surprised and I want you to realize that God's doing something with it. Do you know how much more I had to say? Do you know how much, I mean, folks, I know 28 sermons is what I promised. I mean, I didn't promise. I indicated. And then uh, I ended up with 49. Okay. But you have no idea what I've left on the cutting room floor. It is absolutely amazing what he said. This subject, the height, the breadth. I mean, we're talking about the gospel of grace. That's who God is. That's who I am apart from him. That's who Jesus is who came to save me. That's who the Holy Spirit is who comes to bring me to him. That's what the gospel is that makes me who I am in Christ and then tells me what I can now do for Christ. And this is what saving faith is. Saving faith that unites you to the finished work of Christ and then a saving faith that's evidenced by the works that you do for Christ. Do you know how much more could have been said? I have written briefly to you. You know, by the way, I've got a little speculation. You know, a while ago, I, I went through the identification of the letter carrier. His name was Silas. Did you hear what I said he did at the church at Jerusalem? He was known as a as an effective leader and an effective. What did I say? Preacher. Exactly. Exactly. Now, at this point, everything I've said up to now, I am comfortable with being faithful with the Bible. I've been faithful to God's word. This is speculation. I think he sent the letter with Silas, who is a what? A preacher. Who is faithful. And it's my speculation. When I get to heaven, I'm going to go ask Silas something. Silas, when you arrived and read the letter, did you do any preaching? I think the first series of sermons, maybe on First Peter, was done by Silas when he got there and read it and started expounding God's word. That well, I'm not saying that's speculation on my part, but I will tell you this: when I see Silas and I ask him if he preached a series on First Peter when he brought it to that church, those churches, the next thing I'm going to ask him is this: How many sermons did it take you? That's the next thing I'm going to ask him. One of my mentors, it took him 112. So I'm going to ask Silas, how many sermons did it take you? But this Silas now brings it. But Paul, but Peter says, this is a brief letter. Now watch, that's not all he says. And when he talks about this, he said, this is a brief letter. A brief letter about the, tr- uh, he says, a brief letter that contains two things. It contains these two things. Watch, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now, folks, this is so important. When I talk to you about the grace of God, I declare doctrine and then I apply doctrine with exhortation. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching doctrine and Reproof, there's exhortation Correction, there's exhortation "...training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work." Folks, please get this rhythm. No preacher has a right to exhort your conscience without first going to the sacred text and developing faithfully the doctrine from that text. But no preacher has preached until after he has given the teaching from that text, he applies it so we put off the old man... And put on the new. But you don't exhort until you identify the teaching in the sacred text. And then once you get to teaching, you don't just polish the sword. You put the sword where it belongs. And that's what you're called to do. And he said, so I wrote briefly, I gave you who you are in Christ, the gospel blessings of who you are. I declared to you, you are not saved by works. You are saved by the works of God in Christ, not your works. But then if you've got saving faith, saving faith works. And here are the gospel commands of what you do for Christ. And he said, so I wrote briefly. There's so much I could have said about all of this. I've written briefly about it and I have given you this message of, that gives you doctrine and exhortation. And it is what? It is the true gospel of grace. Now brothers and sisters, if there's something called the true gospel of grace, guess what? There are some false gospels parading this grace. There are some Gospels that say, oh, you can be saved and, and not go kill sin in your life. Don't worry, you're still saved. Saved by grace, oh, wonderful condition, I can sin like I won't and still have remission. That's a false Gospel. Then there's another Gospel is you can't be saved unless you attain a certain level of righteousness in your own righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So... Friends, there's a false gospel, but there's not just, there is only, now listen carefully, there is only one true gospel. There are many false gospels. And there are many false gospel, there are many false gospel teachers. That is, people teaching false gospels who are false teachers. Some of them are wolves in sheep's clothing. Some of them are sheep in wolf's clothing, like Peter. Did Peter get the gospel wrong, according to Paul in Galatians? Yeah, he says you're preaching another gospel. But he's not telling Peter he's not saved. Peter got off track. And he was teaching another gospel. So sometimes there's sheep and wolves clothing. Sometimes there's wolves in sheep's clothing. But here's another problem that we've got. But Jesus says false teachers and false gospels are going to increase as we move toward his coming. And I think there's another problem we've got. The venues available to them are also going to increase in number and effectiveness. Now, I'm glad to do our podcast today in perspective. I'm glad our 30-minute teaching in perspective. I'm glad to do the Ask the Pastor. I'm glad to do all of these mechanisms. And by the way, technology is just like postscripts. It's amoral. There's nothing sinful about iPhones or, uh, or uh, computers any more than there was anything sinful about quills and papyrus. But you can use them sinfully or you can use them rightly. Well, I do this. We do these things. um, We have special means. We write books. Guess what? False teachers have all that available to them. And many times they got more money than we got. And they do it more effectively, technically, technologically than we do. Not that we should ever settle for that. And so they've got avenues to you they didn't have before. Used to, to go hear a false teacher, had to go hear a false teacher. Now you don't have to go hear a false teacher. They're coming to you. They're through Netflix. Amazon Prime, YouTube, radio, computer, iPhone, apps. They got all of those things available and they come with false credentials and false teaching with a false gospel that promises a false grace. And so all of that is now he says before you. After after giving this distillation, he then finishes up, and let me finish up looking at the postscript, with the exhortations and admonitions of the letter's commitment. Now, this this gives my heart great joy. I'm going to give to you a concluding outline and focus of 1 Peter in two weeks. And what I am so grateful for... Is at that time, we've been, we have been so out of balance and a guy that is so symmetrical in life, I, it so pains me. We keep having more gospel blessings than gospel commands. Gloriously, after today, there will be fifteen gospel blessings and now he's giving two more gospel commands. There will be fifteen gospel, ble- gospel commands. I love it when a plan comes together. And now, what are the two gospel commands he gives here? Here's the first one. I I have written briefly to you the true gospel of grace, declaring its doctrine and exhorting you in your life. Now, stand firm in it. It's in the imperative. Stand firm in it. Why is he saying that? Because of this. You can't stand firm for it if you don't stand firm in it. If you don't know who you are because of Jesus, you'll never stand firm for it. If you don't know what you do because of Jesus, then you'll never stand firm for it. You've got to know I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, before you're able to identify with Christ, to be consistent with Christ, stay the course in suffering, engage in spiritual warfare, and tell others always be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you. You won't stand firm for it. Unless you know who you are because of it, you've got to stand firm in it. And that's why you know that. That's why you love to sing. Tell me the old, old story. I need to know who I am in Christ in order to know what I do for Christ and why I do what I do for Christ and why I'm willing to suffer for Christ. So he not only gives that command, he then gives another command. All right. All introverts reach down and hold on to something. This is going to be tough. All right. All introverts. Hang on. He then gives another command. Look how he develops these. He says, um, he says to you, he says, I want you to greet uh, he says this, she who is at Babylon, that by the way, Babylon is a New Testament way to refer to Rome. What was Babylon, the capital of paganism in the days of the apostles? What was Rome, the capital of paganism? So Peter is writing this letter to these churches in today's Turkey from a particular church. He is there at Rome. And now what does he say? She who is at Babylon, who is like, in other words, everything I have said to you in this letter is true to them. Don't you love that? Everything is true. They likewise are the elect of God. And so they are chosen. Now they send you greetings. I love to do this. When I, I'm away preaching in another church about six times a year, five or six times a year, I think it is. And when I'm away, one of the first things I love to do is tell them, the membership and leadership of Briarwood sends you greetings. And then I always say, come and visit us. For two reasons. One, we will explain to you football. But secondly, come to Birmingham and Alabama and it won't be a culture shock when you get to heaven. That's what I always promise them. But I love to extend your greetings to them. And then to be able to share their greetings with you. That we love to encourage one another within the body of Christ. Churches confessionally united in and through Christ. And then he says, then he says, greet one another. And then he says, also, my son, Mark, Oops, this is unbelievable. Do you this is cutting room floor stuff. Do you know how much I've got to leave on the floor right now? Mark, who is Mark? This is the cousin of Barnabas. Who is Mark? He went on the first missionary journey. Who is Mark? He flunked out. Who is Mark? He's the guy that Paul wouldn't take with him on the second missionary journey. Who is Mark? He's the guy that then went with Barnabas. Who is Mark? He's no longer with Barnabas. He's now with who? He's with Peter. Who is Mark? Let me take you to three epistles in the New Testament the Apostle Paul wrote, who at the end of his life, remember the guy that couldn't go with him? At the end of his life, he says, send me Mark. He is useful for the ministry. This little word, Mark, my son. Don't you love that? Look at the migration of Mark. Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, Peter, back to Paul. Look at the maturation, not a washout, my son. Not a project. Now, a man who is able to send greetings and is noteworthy. Within the church and will go with Paul when he dies for the faith in Rome, he'll be there with him, according to second Timothy, the migration and maturation. What's happened to him? Don't miss this. I, 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 listen, I know you said I thought you were going to leave this on the cutting room floor. I know. But let me just give you one more piece of it. This is why I wrote the book 3D Leadership. These three things are important to migrate in, and, and mature to migrate in maturation as what you need as a man or a woman are models. He had them. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, mentors. He had them. And motivators. He had them. You need models. You need mentors. You need motivators. He had them. So instead of a washout, he's a son. Instead of a washout, he becomes noteworthy in the first century expansion of the gospel into Europe. That's what he becomes. He sends you greetings. Babylon sends you greetings. Then he sends you greetings. And then he says to them, here's your second gospel command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That means a phileo kiss, not an eros kiss. I know the introverts now are shaking. I know next Sunday morning, he we're not going to handshake and may the Lord be with you anymore. We're going to be smooching on each other. (laughs) Well, if you do, make it sanctified. That's all I'm asking you. Make it sanctified. This is a phileo kiss. It's not a eros kiss. It's like I did a wedding yesterday. and I always tell the couple. I'm going to say, kiss the bride. Don't worry. You think it's never going to get there, but it'll get there. But when you do, I want you to remember something. This kiss is the last kiss of the courtship, not the first kiss of the honeymoon. I want you to remember that. That you remember how you approach this kiss, all right? And so uh, I don't want to have to interrupt and say, excuse me, don't do that. So here that's what he's talking about. That was the custom. So we're back to customs of okay, folks, fist bump, shake hands, elbow touch, do something. But here's the command. My people must my people must express and demonstrate observable love to the world. My people are to demonstrate observable love to the world. It ought to be evident that we love one another. And then he says, now, finally, I've got a benediction. I've got a benediction for you. It's called peace. Now, in the early church, in the home church, the pastor would just go around and he'd put his hand on somebody and give them a verse. And, because, see, benedictions are not prayers. Benediction is not a prayer that we make to God. A benediction is God's word promised to you. Bene, beneficial, good, dictate word for you. That's the way they used to do it. And then the church, you know, Jerusalem, you got 3,000. If you close the service by going around giving each person a verse and put their hands on, we'll never get out of here. So what they then, the early church, began to do as it would grow is that the pastor, in the invocation, he would call for the Holy Spirit. In the benediction, he would give this sign and the people would raise their hands to receive it. The good word from God. And what is his? May peace be with all of you in Christ. In Christ, you have peace. See the flow? True Gospel of grace, peace. Grace brings peace. If you ever get a letter from me, it should start. This is what I always do. Grace and peace. I never started peace and grace. It's grace that gets you to peace. And true grace always gets you to the peace of Christ. Always. Always. So let me give you some takeaways and then we'll close in prayer. So takeaway number one is this contextualized Christians. Remember when I asked the question, why in the world would he do a postscript?" I said, because it's a convention. Folks, we are to live in the world, but not be of the world. We ought not to be. We ought not to be distinctive because we're odd. We ought to be distinctive because of what God's doing in us. But we live in the same world the world lives in. We live in the same world, but we live differently. It's not when we live like the world that we draw them to Christ. It's when we live differently, but our difference is not to be odd. We live in the same convey- we write letters with postscripts. We write letters with salutations. We are like- we're in the world, but not of the world. Now some Christians, because they don't want to be of the world, take themselves out of the world. Well then you're useless. Some Christians, because they want to be useful, think they're useful if they're how much they're like the world. And uh, so that they're undistinguishable from the world. Now you got no witness verbally or visually. We want to be in, but not of. Best illustration one of my friends gave to me one time was this. A guy got a boat and he said, you know, I love this boat. I don't want this boat to I don't want this boat to sink. So I'm going to put it up on dry dock. So if you get a boat, you buy a boat and you put it up on dry dock. Guess what? Won't sink. You also will never enjoy it because it's out of the lake. You got to put it in the lake to enjoy a boat. That's what you got to do. But if the boat gets, uh, if the boat gets a hole in it, then what happens? You got the lake in the boat. That's called sinking. You don't want that. You don't want the lake in the boat and you don't want the boat out of the lake. We don't want Christians out of the world, but we want the world out of them. We want to be in the world, but not of the world. Therefore, we enter into houses and jobs and technology use and all of that, not like the world, but for Christ. And our difference is not by oddity. Our difference is by the work of the Holy Spirit from the inside out as we live in the world, but not of the world. Secondly, not only are you to be a contextualized Christian, but secondly, you are to embrace the privilege of Christian commendations. Here's Peter. And he says about Silas, he's faithful. Luke tells us and he's a brother. He's forgiven. Luke tells us he was fruitful as a preacher and a leader. I like that. I almost said, man, here's another sermon. Fruitful, faithful, forever. Faithful, but clearly. I mean, I thought about my granddaddy. Somebody just handed me a CD. My granddaddy, toward the end of his life, got recognized in his teaching ministry in the Methodist Church. And he became a lay minister in the Methodist Church. And he'd go around and fill the little rural churches. And somehow, I got a... uh, recording of his john 17 talk and i was listening to it and it brought back the memory of the time my granddaddy came to me and said to me he said uh, son i'm getting close to he- i'm getting close to heaven i want you to get ready to do my funeral and i said my granddaddy i just don't think i can do your funeral i mean my granddaddy just had this unbelievable effect in my life uh the first person i told when i became a christian was my granddaddy and um and so he uh well, Cindy was first. Uh, then second was, was my granddaddy. But, uh, but I'll never forget, uh, I'll never forget what he said to me then. He said, you are going to do my funeral. I said, granddad, I just don't think I'd be able to, I just don't, I just am not going to be comfortable. He said, well, I don't really care if you're going to be comfortable or not. You're going to do my funeral. He said, so get ready. And I said, okay. I mean, I knew when we got to that point, that was done. And then he said to me this, he said, Son, I had a great church I grew up in. I've come back to it at the end of my life. But this church where I'm at hadn't preached the gospel for 20 years. And if i got to die to get it preached one more time, I'm going to do it. So my number one thing, when you get in that pulpit, forget me and tell them about Jesus. I'm dead. I had to do this to get you that hearing. Now, don't waste it. I said, yes, sir. And he said, here's the second thing. I see this every time I go to take care of his grave in Augusta. He said, on that tombstone, don't let them put anything but one word. Forgiven. Forgiven. What is that one word? Forgiven, that's a great one. Fruitful, praise the Lord. But I don't think you can beat this one. Faithful. Not perfect. But faithful to the end. So, God, please help Briarwood, every Sunday school, every Sunday school community, small group, teacher, leader. God, please help this preacher. No matter what happens in the world. With no angst and no anger of men. Help us to be faithful. All the way home. Faithful to Him who is our life. Faithful to Him with our life. And don't, not only should you commend, but give those superlative commendations. There's my third one. Here is the commended commendation. Faithful. Learn, first of all, to give commendations. You know, here, God did not call you to keep somebody humble. He said, humble who yourself? You're not called to keep people humble, but you are called to encourage one another all the more as you see the day. And I'm not talking about flattery. I'm not talking about just thinking up stuff that you can manipulate people to like you because you say things about them because it's effective. I'm talking about heartfelt, thoughtful. What is a virtue that I see God's grace doing in that person's life? I want to commend them. I want to commend them. I want to. They're suffering for Christ. Let me encourage them. Let me give them an attaboy. They are in spiritual warfare for Christ. Let me encourage them. So we are to give commendations. And the number one commendation that I would suggest to you that's commended to you is faithful. Number four. Remember, there is the true gospel of grace that you are to embrace in life, not the false gospel. Let me just mention one other thing. You remember, uh, no, you don't remember. Many of you don't even, haven't even probably read about this. But Billy and Ruth Graham went to, uh, and the team went to London for a wonderful, glorious crusade in the 1950s. Ruth writes about this moment where they sat at a formal dinner with political officials. And she sat across from the Minister of Finance. And she she was just making conversation and they got to talking about he wants to get rid of counterfeits and he wants to get rid of counterfeits. And he wants to get rid of counterfeits with everything that he's got. And she said, well, my goodness, there's a lot of counterfeits, aren't there? He said, oh, yeah, there's a lot of them. She says, well, how can you possibly know all those counterfeits? He said, I can't. I don't even try. He said, the way I know the counterfeits is I just know the real thing. So, folks, again, even though we're imperfect and uneven, God, help us hold to the true gospel of grace, a grace that takes you where you are and never leaves you where you are. A grace that makes you who you are because of what Jesus did on the cross and a grace that then takes you and begins to fashion you to be like Jesus from the cross all the way to glory. A grace that is true. A grace that declares doctrinal truth and biblical exhortation. A grace that that encourages people as they suffer for Christ and are at war to uphold Christ. And a grace that they understand through teaching and discipleship and gospel preaching and expositional preaching so that when the false gospels come they spot it and they know the false teacher know the false gospel and they're able to stand firm for christ fifthly and finally the gospel of grace brings you to the promise of peace to a glorious promise of peace this peace that he says, all who are in Christ, peace be to you. It's the peace of Romans 5.1. It's a peace with God because of Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We didn't before. We were enemies. Now we've got peace with God through the blood of the cross and the righteousness of Christ. When you're saved by faith and you're in Christ. And not only that, you get the peace of God. Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your requests known with thanksgiving unto the Lord. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. You not only have peace with God objectively, legally, you've got the peace of God experientially and personally, even as you suffer for Him, even as you serve Him in the spiritual warfare of the day. You've got peace with God and the peace of God. Why? Because by God's grace, you have the peace from God. A peace from God that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's John sixteen thirty three? In the world, you will have tribulation. In me, you have peace. Take courage. I've overcome the world. We have peace with God. What a glorious benediction. A good word. We have the peace of God. Because we've got a peace from God through Christ. Yesterday at this wedding we sang this hymn. And I just wanted to give you two verses. Grace. True grace. The benediction of peace. Here's what it says. When through fiery trials... Thy pathway shall lie. Don't be surprised at the grievous sufferings. When through fiery trials, thy pathway shall lie. My grace, all sufficient, it shall be your supply. The flames shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. It's peace. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, shall endeavor to shake. I'll never. I'll never. No, never. That soul forsake. God's grace, true. God's peace. Forever. All my sins forgiven. All my life His. Please come to Him. I plead with you. Do not play the world's games. There is no peace. Come to Christ. If you know Christ, K-N-O-W, you'll K-N-O-W know peace. But I warn you, if there is in O Christ no Christ, then there is in O no peace. Would you join me in prayer? Just have the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Grace, peace. Peace from Christ. That gives you peace with God. That gives you the peace of God. Peace be to all who are in Christ. By the grace of God. T'was grace taught my heart to fear. Grace then my fears relieved. Peace, peace. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Suffering, spiritual warfare, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home forever.
0: You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.